With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 88th episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Player FM, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And of course, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. Then you will be notified just as soon as each new show is available. Thank you to all my listeners throughout the world. I truly do appreciate you. And thank you for listening and sending all your messages. I really do appreciate getting them and I enjoy reading them. And I hope you're all doing well. My June Privacy Professor Tips message was published on May 28th. Please sign up for them. I've provided them for free since 2005 and I've been archiving them since 2007. I've been doing this in an effort to increase general awareness of data and cybersecurity and privacy issues, and also to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send to their employees. I know you don't often have a sufficient budget to send out awareness information, so I hope you can make use of these. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. Also, we are now providing free ebooks and awareness videos through my privacysecuritybrainiacs.com site. Get them from there and sign up for notifications about those from privacysecuritybrainiacs.com. Now for today's topic. So first of all, before we get into the details, consider this. The amount of data that is being generated is increasing exponentially through IoT devices, use of 5G networks, derivation of new data using artificial intelligence and machine learning, and so many other types of technologies, and they are all being added to the data that we've already created over the past many decades. This data is being collected and duplicated and transferred not only through traditional network paths, but also through such things as data pipelines being stored in data lakes and processed with a very wide range of analytics, resulting in even more derived data. International Data Corporation, which most folks know as IDC, predicts that the collective sum of the world's data will grow from the 33 zettabytes that existed in 2018 to 175 zettabytes by 2025, which is a compounded annual growth rate of 61%, which sounds pretty big, right? But I believe that it's actually going to be much more than that based on the work that I've been doing with IoT research over the past several years. Now, I've been getting many questions from my listeners and tips readers asking me to discuss some topics that they've heard or read about that are new terms to them. And guess what are new terms to them? 
data lakes, data pipelines, uh, minifies, and the associated security issues and threats and vulnerabilities along with where these are even going to be used. Well, I have a treat for you today. I have an expert for these topics on the show today. Gal Sponsor is a cybersecurity expert, virtual CISO, and a trusted advisor to CISOs of large corporations, tech startups, and nonprofits such as top research universities and think tanks. Since 2014, Gal has focused on threats to availability such as ransomware and nukeware. I bet that's a new term for some of you also. While researching lateral movement, Gall focused on high-speed telemetry for response to fast-moving threats, which brought him to streaming analytics and forward-compatible data pipelines. Gall brought this approach to one of his clients, a Fortune 100 company's security team, from concept to full implementation using open source tools such as Minify and NiFi, Kafka and Spark, and it enabled a petabyte data lake, there's the other term, serving on-premises and multi-cloud sources and multiple analytical tools from cloud-native storage to commercial security information and event management. Now, this project enabled CISO-level metrics, which also enabled a scalable approach to onboarding new sources and distributing data to new consumers in a really cost-effective manner, which also reduced licensing costs. And so there's a lot of new terms for you, but don't worry. We're going to go over those so you can better understand what they all mean. Gall, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Thanks, Rebecca, for inviting me. Uh, We've known each other for uh, well over a decade now, worked on a couple cool projects, uh, and uh, happy to be reunited in this uh, forum. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I'm so happy to be able to work with you and speak with you again and learn more about these really interesting new types of technologies. And, you know, talking about these new types of technologies and the new um, terms that I think a lot of our listeners just heard, some of them maybe for the first time, because I have a a really wide range of listeners. So I I have uh, teens and high school students all the way up Mm -hmm. through octogenarians, and they're considering getting into cybersecurity fields or switching to new fields if they're already in them, uh, along with those of all ages who have no cybersecurity experience, but they want to learn more. And there's a lot of folks out there who just love to learn. So I thought we'd level set here to begin with. Because, you know, you're dealing with a lot of uh, concepts that are really new to folks. So can you maybe describe what you mean by high-speed streaming analytics data pipelines? Sure. So uh, a lot of people, when they're looking at analytics, let's focus on that word first, analytics, they assume Mm -hmm. that they have the right data that is fresh and still relevant in a particular place, in the right format, in the right volume, uh, and is ready to be analyzed by the analytical tool. Those are a lot of actually mostly incorrect assumptions in many places, in many cases, because in many uh, cases and places, none of those or at least several of those requirements for being able to analyze the data are not quite there. And so in some cases, we have late arriving data or data that is stale, depending on the use case. In some cases, you need data that is up to seconds old. In some cases, you don't care if it's many months old. It really depends on the use case. But uh, certainly, there are times when we have analytical tools that require a certain um, format of data. So, for example, in a file format called JSON, J-S-O-N, versus something like the way the log was created by the original source before it got to the analytical pipeline or to the analytical tool, 
it was created in something like a comma-separated value, a CSV, which we know as Excel, uh, or it was created in a syslog format, but not in JSON. And so in the pipeline, between the time the log was generated by the actual source, for example, you mentioned earlier in your introduction, an IoT device, a temperature sensor, a pressure sensor, or something like that, it may not be generated in the right format for the actual analytical tool that's going to be the end user or what we call a consumer of that data that was created by what we call a producer. So a data pipeline is really a thing that is multiple tools in the LAN, in the WAN, sometimes both, that captures, aggregates, and creates the proper plumbing for sending the data to the consumers, such as storage fabric, uh, short and long-term, and actual analytical tools, which mostly uh, people think of as a data warehouse, like a SQL um, database. But in many cases these days, there are a lot of other NoSQL or just uh, serverless functions that work on the data in the various storage fabrics without even the need for a database server at all. And so given the proliferation of the types and locations of consumers, the things that store and analyze the data, the data pipeline is an intermediate several layers of tools and processes that allow you to connect and distribute and redistribute uh, the correct format and type and scale and, and uh, type of sampling, for example, is another uh, use case for in-pipe analytics between the various producers of types of sources, wherever they are, and the mm-hmm. types of consumers, the storage and analytical pipeline uh, fabric. So there is this kind of metadata and, and meta uh, process layer between the sources and the sinks or the producers and the consumers, and it allows you to do a lot more with the analytics and enable analytics is the final goal. So a lot of times throughout uh, the past many years, when people heard pipeline, they often Mm -hmm. think about a VPN or something that just simply um, is a conduit of data. But what you're describing Mm -hmm. is much more than that, right? Because it's doing all this analytics. Right. And so a VPN is is considered a kind of a dumb encrypted pipe that allows you to just secure and authenticate the network connection so that people can't inspect the packets and see what's in them. And also there's in some cases some level of authentication uh, uh, implied in a VPN connection between, say, a client laptop desktop and a, a server or a getting into a network and then you authenticate to the server. But once you're on the network first via the VPN, This is not an example of that. Uh, In many cases, uh, data pipelines can involve a uh, a IPsec or a TLS VPN uh, to secure data coming from the LAN over the WAN to a cloud environment. So all the major cloud environments have, you know, AWS, Azure, DCP, et cetera. They have the capability to build a durable VPN to encapsulate that data uh, with encryption so that when you're sending it over the WAN as part of the larger data pipeline, you're not as worried about the data being uh, hijacked or inspected for sensitive data like passwords and content. But a data pipeline is a much more uh, complex and um, uh, larger organism, if you will, a collection of tools. Part of a data pipeline's job absolutely is understanding the security uh, of moving data securely over the WAN between certain parts of uh, an on-prem network, say, and a cloud data lake or a cloud server or, or even a backup server. So a VPN is not necessary, but it often can be a part of a larger data pipeline approach. Okay. So I think that's very helpful. You, d- you described that very well. Um, and now we have the data pipeline I think a lot of folks listening might assume, well, this data pipeline must be uh, dumping into a data lake. Is that what's happening or what is a data lake? And is it more complex than just receiving uh, all of the output from a, a data pipeline? Or do they even need to be used together for that matter? They, they are often used together, but we should focus on the data pipeline and data lake as separate but related things. So the data pipeline, the job there is to enable the connection and the plumbing between the things that produce logs, regardless of where they are and what version of logs they are, mm-hmm. and connect those log sources to the log consumers. 
So what that means is, let's say, for example, you have uh, what many organizations today are struggling with is this kind of hybrid environment where they have an on-premises data center and land-oriented network with collection of database servers and uh, routers and switches and firewalls and IDSs and obviously laptops connecting on and off the network via VPN or on-prem. And then over the years, certainly uh, since COVID, which much accelerated this trend, they added a lot of software-as-a-service services from cloud, like, say, Salesforce or Gmail or Office 65. They added various file-sharing services like Box or uh, Dropbox or Office 65, again, in Gmail, uh, Google Docs. And they added uh, even some other cloud servers, uh, infrastructure as a service in the various cloud vendors, and in some cases, platform as a service, so SQL database as a service. So those things that IaaS has and SaaS cloud services exist outside of the on-prem data center with a kind of perimeter network. And in many cases, that digital transformation, as the CIOs call it, or what some people in security want to create a zero-trust environment where the laptops are as secure, if not more so, even and especially when they're off of the VPN and off of the LAN and they're consuming all the cloud services directly from the Internet, those types of transformations are still happening. And in the absence of a properly proactively designed data pipeline, it is very difficult and very wasteful and ineffective to have all of these new sources in both physical location and in type. Uh, create a situation where you're able to get all the telemetry that's being produced to the right places without having to bounce it back on-prem first and then go out to cloud, or as, as an example of what we call hairpinning. So over the years, as cloud became more um, important, and, for example, federal agencies started uh, using Office 65 for email, they were forced in many cases to have desktops send all of the email traffic to, to on-prem when they were remote, through VPN, and then back out to Office 65. Through, and so there's almost double hairpinning, and it created latency and created timeouts, and it created all kinds of performance problems, especially when we started getting into uh, secure uh, teleconferencing in terms of voice and, of, of course, video, which is much more difficult to get through that uh, multiple hairpins. So mm-hmm. the reality is that the world of IT has changed as well as security, and so we have to understand how do we use the concept of data pipelines and data engineering, which we'll talk about, to, again, connect the plumbing and create repeatable patterns where you have a certain type of location and a type of data that needs to get telemetry to a different location uh, and, and for a particular use case, such as long-term storage archiving or backup or immediate analytics for, say, an advertising technology or a fraud prevention technology, and that is a consumer and a type of use case. So think about it like plumbing. There are analogs that are good, like the circulatory system. You have a heart, you have a brain, and all of the um, peripheral and uh, core uh, arteries and veins that send and receive oxygenated or deoxygenated blood from the lungs to the heart, back to the legs, so we can run and walk. But the brain is the analytics tool. And so the analytics tool needs the oxygenated blood and then it needs to get rid of the deoxygenated blood and send it back to the lung, right? So there is some good analog- analogs there, including the concept of back pressure, so analogous to blood pressure where you have too much, and so it's bad for the pipeline, and you start dropping uh, logs, and they can't be processed fast enough. So all of these actual physical meat space analogs to oil pipelines or gas pipelines or circulation pipelines are in many cases, quite apt, where the brain is the actual uh, analytical tool. And so those are things that we're working on to kind of democratize this concept. Another one is the nervous system. So in IoT, for example, you mentioned earlier, there are so many types of sensors and so many locations and use cases for sensors. And in some cases, we need to take a pressure sensor or a strain sensor or a temperature sensor that is on a truck on the highway or on an oil rig in the middle of the ocean or on the International Space Station in orbit a couple hundred miles up. All those sensors are producing logs and telemetry in a certain format, a certain cadence, one per second, a hundred times a second, once a minute, whatever. And all of those things add up to, okay, there's a number of events per minute. Uh, or per second, EPS, there's a volume of events per second or per minute or per hour or per day, gigabytes. And those mm-hmm. two rates and volumes independently show you how much and how big the telemetry is. And then you start adding in things like 
formatting changes and sampling issues and things like that, and being able to transform the data to the right place. So then this thing in the middle of the data pipeline, uh, typically embodied by an open source tool called Kafka, which was mm-hmm. developed in-house at LinkedIn about uh, 11 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And LinkedIn open sourced that and uh, gave the world a what's called a pub-sub message bus or public uh, uh, publish-subscribe message bus. And if you think about it, what it can do is take, again, a bunch of producers, an IoT sensor in the oil rig, a Windows 2012 uh, server with SQL on it uh, on, on top of a virtual machine, so then you have now three different layers of telemetry and on top of the network, et cetera, that surround that uh, mm-hmm. server. That could be on-prem. That could be another uh, SQL database as a service, a SQL server in Azure in the cloud. could be Salesforce.com as a SaaS service. All of those things together create data and telemetry, or we call them a producer or a source. Kafka receives that in the middle and then says, hey, I'm going to publish a bunch of topics so people with different needs for even the same data, can subscribe to a given topic and only get the data they need from Kafka, even though they have hundreds of of producers and maybe even dozens of consumers. Each consumer, in many cases, needs its own kind of custom feed, and so it can subscribe or be connected to a subscription from Kafka. So let's say, for example, you're in a SOC or a security operations center, Mm -hmm. and you need to know everything that's going on relating to DNS or domain name service, and not just the whole um, high-speed uh, uh, full DNS logging. That's, that can go to a different storage fabric, for example, but only the DNS hits that match with cyber threat intelligence in the last five to ten minutes, let's say. So let's say we have ten minutes of a window, and we have a database or a spreadsheet or whatever it is it's representing bad DNS locations on the Internet that imply bad guys with parked phishing sites or parked command and control channels or parked download sites for bad malware. That is a list of bad places that are embodied by a list of DNS cyber threat intelligence. And then the actual feed of DNS can be in real time from a matter of one-second intervals to, let's say, 10-minute intervals, match with that threat intelligence. And so one of the things we can do with things like Kafka is we have a producer called DNS that sends everything into Kafka. Then Kafka says, hey, I'm going to publish full DNS, and that will go to archiving, and that will go to places that operate on the entire DNS infrastructure and understand performance issues, application issues, for example. But in the stock, there's also someone who just says, you know what, show me the confirmed hit with cyber threat intelligence for the last 10 minutes of live DNS. And that is the ability for Kafka to give you a tailor-made feed that you can subscribe to and interface with specific tools that operate on only that data. What that allows you to do is create really cool queries that happen with a very high degree of specificity, and they don't consume as much uh, computing power in the analytical tool because Kafka has already given you the work that it's done to tailor that feed for you. So you're not constantly creating hundreds of people creating very large queries that are competing against one another in a SIM, for example. And a lot of people are super frustrated with the old school SIM, and I'm not going to necessarily name names about which SIMs are you know, better than others, but that's not what we're here to do, but rather about the SIM, which is one big index and in in kind of a database application on top of it, is operating a lot of different use cases for a lot of different people on all of the data. And so it basically goes in and regexes for, hey, here's the data that I need. And what a lot of times happens, because none of the pre-work has been done upstream of the SIM, it ends up being timed out or it ends up being a very uh, high latency or slow response to the analytics. And so this is why we want to have part of the high-speed streaming analytics data pipeline, which is a big mouthful, each of those terms is really about abstracting some of the necessary functionality and moving it upstream, if you will, from the necessary single end consumer, which is what has become this big monolithic SIM tool that people have been stuck with. So I want right. people to consider the data pipeline as an analytics enabler that helps you get away from only using one big tool for all the things. And, you know, let's talk about the iron triangle 
of data engineering. So in well, before we go there, we're going to have a sure, break sure. coming up. But I think something okay. that's important um, for people to understand, and maybe maybe I didn't interpret this correctly, but when we think of the data lake, what you've been talking about isn't just one location for the data. It sounds like the way you described it, you have locations spread out over many different um, systems uh, or locations potentially. Um, and I want to get into that. We're coming up on a break right now, so I need to, to count us down. But when we come back, I want us to get into you know some of those issues and then the related security and privacy issues and how you can use your analytics then to uh, support all of those uh, issues that they need to um, deal with. So right now it's time for a quick break to hear from our sponsors. I'm speaking today with Gal Schwanzer, cybersecurity expert and the architect of the largest Minify deployment in the world. I And he's going to tell us about that when we come back, or at least as much of it as he's allowed to talk about. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through my privacyguidance.com website. Please stay with us. We will be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. The Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs Visit PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and I'm speaking today with Gal Sponsor, cybersecurity expert and the architect of the largest supported Minify deployment in the world. And right before we went to break, while Gal was describing um, how data pipelines and data lakes um, you know, how they are related to each other and the different types of analytics with Kafka. And so, Gal, I was starting to ask you about the data. Um, and mm-hmm. the way you were describing data lakes, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it kind of sounds like the data in those data lakes, it's not like they're all located in one huge mainframe someplace are those kind of spread out all over the place and then your analytics is like an omnipotent type of you know tool that can see all the different locations and consider it as one big uh, pool of data Uh, 
it depends on the architecture of the data lake. And a data lake is a term that typically describes a uh, Hadoop file system or something similar. That's where this started, where people said, you know, uh, we are, say, for example, Google. They were downloading the entire Internet, the entire web every night and indexing it. And they Yikes. realized, you know, we can't do this using traditional tools. And so mm -hmm. they created, uh, many, many years ago, a, a distributed file system. And we, we know now didn't know that as Hadoop. So between Google and Yahoo and some other folks who had uh, kind of the dominance in the search environment, they were literally downloading the web every night or even several times a day and indexing it. And so they just could not use what's called traditional SQL data warehouses because they weren't fast enough or they were too expensive. There wasn't enough uh, specialized hardware. There were a lot of issues with computational power and uh, cost and just physical scale. So they created this distributed file system of commodity hardware called Hadoop or HDFS. Um, and over time, Cloud vendors like Amazon and Azure and Google Cloud and others created their own Hadoop-compatible storage fabric. So Amazon has S3, Azure has Blobs or Azure Data Lake uh, services, ADLS, and Google has their own versions of those types of buckets, GCS, Google Cloud Storage, and others. And so over time, people said, you know, we can have an on-prem Hadoop Data Lake, we can have one in the cloud, we can have both. Uh, and so the main difference between a traditional data warehouse and a data lake is the idea of a raw layer. And when I say raw layer, you take the data as it comes in from the source, in many cases, before you transform it or do anything to it, other than maybe adding some metadata tags as to the provenance or where did it come from and when did it come from and when did it come in. So a data lake is a, a bit more of a looser collection and a less rigid, less formally described schema. So in a SQL server, we have something called schema on write. When you write into a SQL database, the data needs to be described in a certain schema and uh, written in a certain way so that it doesn't blow up the, the, the database formatting, if you will, to get non-technical. Uh, and in a data lake, you can just write what you want in a, uh, a Hadoop file system, and it will be okay. You have some syslog, you have some JSON, you have some CSV, it doesn't matter because it'll just be there and we can deal with the schema later on. Now, over time, things accumulate and it gets really complex. And so you have schema registries and data catalogs around where did it come from, the type of classification it came in with, uh, who was allowed to access it in terms of various kind of pointers to role-based access. And so there are all kinds of open source tools, Apache Ranger, Apache Knox, uh, Apache Atlas, and other things like that that grew up as part of the Hadoop ecosystem you, through the open source Apache Foundation that allow you to create access controls and understanding what is in the data lake and where it comes from and who's allowed to see it and what can they do with it, read versus write, et cetera. So the biggest thing, again, is the raw layer and the schema on read in the data lake, and that's opposed to the data warehouse, which is usually a, a very large collection of SQL servers. It is schema on write, and you can't just write stuff to it. You have to be formally described uh, before you get into the database. So if this lake is comprised of hardware with storage areas, let's say in all seven continents, and I can't leave out Antarctica, of course, so it's all seven, mm -hmm. but uh, let's say that we have some uh, folks who say, well, we don't want to have our data stored in North America or South America because we don't think that our um, they aren't sufficient. You know, it's insufficient data protection laws there. So we need to make sure that yep. we only store it in, in certain locations. Is that possible in a data lake or how does that work? It is indeed. It is indeed. And this is where the data pipeline and data lake and privacy and governance really come into play together. Mm. It has the ability to, say, repeat uh, certain uh, patterns. So, for example, Windows laptops in Germany, okay? Those laptops create a certain amount of telemetry through Windows events and through other antivirus and other uh, telemetry collecting uh, producers, whether it's the operating system and or various agents that, that collect data. And once those laptops and its agents... Uh, connect to the data pipeline, the initial aggregation tier, typically inside Germany, 
uh, if you're following some of the kind of data uh, uh, localization and geofencing uh, regulations, then once it's in the pipeline in Germany, then you, you create a policy in the pipeline that says that German laptops that uh, can produce sensitive data directly or even just indirectly by knowing, hey, uh, uh, Jürgen logged on at 9.45 in the morning and then logged off at 7.30 p.m. That in and of itself, to many people in Germany and the works councils, etc., can be sensitive data because it could be used to uh, score that person's compliance with HR policies. Whereas in many cases, and in some of the products I worked on specifically in a global company, you have a situation where the data pipeline needs to be programmed, and even after that, the data lake needs to be programmed to only allow the correct use case for the right people and the right tools to analyze the data to support a specific use case, such as cybersecurity. So, for example, if I'm monitoring Jurgen's laptop in uh, Munich, it's not okay for me to say, hey, you know, uh, he's doing certain things or is showing up at certain times that uh, HR would want to know about because I'm in cybersecurity and my mandate for collecting and analyzing that data that I got a warrant, if you will, from the company's lawyers and privacy regulators does not allow me to say, hey, HR, you should fire this person because they're chronically tardy. That's literally none of my business. There's a firewall between HR and cybersecurity, right? So that data coming in from his laptop will go to the pipeline and go to the data lake, typically, if necessary, in Germany, or a data lake in the, uh, the cloud that allows for only the right people in cybersecurity to analyze that data for the cybersecurity use case, but nothing else. And so when you describe these types of tools to the privacy folks, it's very important to clarify to them why you're collecting the data, where it'll be stored, the kind of controls around it, and what the use case is. And of course, you, Rebecca Harold, knows more about this than I do. I'm just describing the capacity for the data pipeline and data lake to enable very granular privacy engineering approaches to implement and strengthen privacy protections for workers and uh, consumers as well. Because you're able to use policies, and even before it hits the storage layer, you can redact things, for example. So in some cases, uh, certain uh, portals or certain security tools will create uh, GPS coordinates for a login event that are very granular down to the home. Uh, and so in some cases, we want to either completely redact them or upscale them to the point where, okay, well, this person is coming in from a country or a state as opposed to a certain location within that country or state. And so in the pipeline, you can order that situation that says, hey, before it gets to the data lake storage or whatever analytical tool after that, redact or uh, uh, descale or, or um, uh, reduce the resolution of the GPS tag that came in from the producer that we can't change anything because it's just coded that way. So those so, are opportunities for privacy preve uh, prevention. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so is Kafka the tool or a tool that you use to create those policies and establish the guardrails, if you will, for how the data is moving uh, through the lake and keeping it in only certain parts of the lake that has been deemed acceptable? Mm -hmm. So Kafka is one of the tools that can do two things at once, depending on how you use it and how you program it. Well, Kafka is usually that uh, message bus that can create the publication, the publish-subscribe model that says, here's all the data. Do you want it or do you want some of the data? We talked about earlier in DNS. So with mm -hmm. privacy, we can say, you know what? Someone can have access to the full GPS coordinates. Let's say uh, if there is an active investigation into insider threat or the federal police of Germany want to track this person somehow and they have a warrant for this data, whatever situation, I don't know. But then that publication, that topic, will only be subscribed to by people with the right authority for that. Everybody else gets a dumbed-down version of that with no GPS at all. And in addition to that, you can create uh, real-time analytics inside Kafka using KSQL or other types of tools that operate in Kafka, but in many cases, even before and certainly after it reaches Kafka, you can uh, publish a topic from Kafka to a different analytical tool, so let's say Spark or Flink or even a SQL database uh, that creates a, a certain uh, analytical 
uh, events. And from there, it ends up going to an alert or to yet another storage place. So it's not a completely linear thing. There are a lot of little loops and iterations. But Kafka basically allows you to say, this is the initial, sorry, this is the later secondary aggregation and distribution tier. The first mile is typically not Kafka. It goes from, say, an agent or a service that sends things from the uh, source itself to something like a NiFi or a Logstash or other intermediate aggregation tools, which then sometimes forward directly to Kafka. There are cases where things go directly to Kafka, but in many cases it's not a good idea because there's this issue called concurrency where you have in a very large-scale IoT device a deployment where you have hundreds of thousands or even millions or tens of millions and many more. They don't all want to talk to Kafka directly. That's not what Kafka is really built for. You want to have some sort of intermediary capture layer, which then will aggregate those, and then you have less of those intermediary uh, aggregators talking directly to Kafka. So there's a little bit of complexity involved here, but the bigger picture is the data pipeline itself can act as an analytical tool, transforming, redacting, uh, uh, adding metadata and provenance of where this come from, etc., and it can also send to Kafka, and then after Kafka, further receive from Kafka and redistribute as a last mile, either back into the data lake or back into a particular alerting system like a pager duty and things like that. So there's a little bit of iteration. In some cases, there's an aggregation for first mile before Kafka and aggregation and distribution for last mile after Kafka or sending from Kafka to, say, Flink, which are very high-speed uh, kind of SQL analytics on the streaming data. So it really depends on the architecture and the use case. But bottom line, if you don't have these tools and these approaches, you're stuck with a very rigid, expensive, mm-hmm. and inefficient way to operate on almost all the data all the time with tools that really aren't built for that. Right. And I think uh, what you said that's very important, especially to those folks out there who may not be uh, come from a technical background, but are concerned about the data, I think the redacting part, because Mm -hmm. if you redact data and it is not going to certain locations, then you have eliminated a potential problem or non-compliance issue. What's interesting, Gal, I thought I liked hearing about LinkedIn. I did not know that LinkedIn was basically Mm -hmm. one of the first data lakes, but uh, not recently, maybe about, oh, in December, uh, this past December, I heard, or actually I, I read, I, I belong to a lot of uh, LinkedIn groups, a lot of GDPR groups. And it was interesting because I recall there was a discussion about data lakes. And they were saying you cannot use a data lake because that is just uncontrollable. And, uh, you know, you can't prove that where the data is stored and this, that, and the other thing. So I think after... Um, you know, when w- after this is published, uh, our our show airs. I'm going to have to post out there to the GDPR groups uh, that make sure that they listen to this because I think you explained very well how just because it's a data lake doesn't mean that you're violating uh, or cannot prove where the data is at. So I that that's no, you certainly can. Uh- yeah, let's say you're using Amazon S3 uh, and you, you or, or other storage environments, or even if you're on-prem. The data pipeline is programmed to send from particular producers to particular consumers, and not just all or nothing, but like, because of Kafka, you can send some of the data using this publish-subscribe model where a particular topic of, let's say, non-redacted and redacted GPS can go mm-hmm. to different consumers. So in a sense, you're, you're allowing top secret versus just secret. You're essentially declassifying okay. or, or um, uh, desensitizing the data in real time based on the use case. So it, it's absolutely not the case that a data lake is incurable from a privacy point of view. I would say proper approaches of data pipelines and data lakes help you create more granular approaches that allow you to enable the, the privacy engineering that is necessary to protect privacy in more locations and more places and more use cases. So that's absolutely a misnomer and I think a, uh, uh, a totally understandable uh, misunderstanding of what a data lake and a data pipeline can do because it is a fairly new topic 
in security and privacy. It's much less of a new topic in ad technology, fraud prevention, and other things like that, or auction optimization like, uh, you know, eBay's and Alibaba's are big uh, in, in this kind of thing, search environments, obviously. That's where this came from. So these things are very powerful, but it is possible to create good privacy engineering practices by programming the pipeline and the data lake together. So uh, I think that's very helpful for our listeners to understand. And also one thing uh, that I think another thing I should say that our listeners are probably wondering is then what are, what are the security? I mean, what is one of the major security risks of a data lake? Or is there better security within a data lake as opposed to a data warehouse, let's say? I think uh, the real answer is it depends. The real answer is it depends on the skill set of the people operating the technology and how familiar they are with it. And also it depends on leadership and how much they emphasize uh, that it's okay to sacrifice some uh, uh, percentage of business goals like velocity and profit and effectiveness and number of people on the, on the job uh, to uh, properly architect and implement and monitor for drift in terms of privacy engineering and security engineering. So there are many tools over the years that were developed to create a situation where you have good access control, you have good logging, you have good monitoring and alerting, uh, and you have even down to very fine-grained uh, provenance of where each individual log file came from uh, in terms of which um, environment it came from. And so, again, if you have a situation where you have laptops in Germany, you can programming you can create a programming event where it says that anything that comes from the left on Germany, there's a tag that follows that log that NIFI can, uh, Minify and or NIFI can add to that log as it's being generated and ingested in the pipeline. And that tag will follow along as it's going through that kind of rainbow of uh, travel inside the data pipeline and into the data lake and into the processing units uh, and analytics uh, tools. So it is something that is an important aspect of classification and, and uh and uh, privacy engineering and security engineering is what is this thing, where did it come from, when did it come here, and what do we do with it? Are there specific policies that we can uh, route this based on an attribute of the data? And so it's, it's, uh, it's really a cool environment where you have uh, the ability to ingest multiple existing and new types of data sources and put them where they belong in the level of redaction, the right format, the right scale, whether you're doing sampling or not. So if you're a so you may not be sampling a lot because you just don't know what's going to be important three, six months from now when you get a notification. But if you're a CIO or a CTO, you should be using aggressive data engineering techniques like sampling to reduce the overall volume and events that you're uh, dealing with. You just need to see the general shape and trend as opposed to literally every piece of straw in the bale of hay, right? Yes. Uh, security, we kind of have to see every piece of straw in the bale of hay because one of those will eventually turn bad on us you know, and it'll be a command and control DNS uh, log, but they only tell us in some cases three to six months to nine months later when we get a knock on the door from FBI or from uh, uh, Brian Krebs or something like that, right? Yes, so it's a little bit yes. different use cases, but it's the same tooling for different groups. And so you don't have to recreate a different pipeline for the CIO or the CTO or the CISO. It's the same pipeline. You just program it to do slightly different operations, a slightly different access control, and distribute it to the right tooling that the different groups use. That's actually the really cool thing about it. I was working at a mega global corp that had a security-sponsored data pipeline and data lake project, but over time, because the IT sources like DNS and uh, network and other things like that were a part of the pipeline that we were using for security, they realized that we were seeing things in the SOC, the Security Operations Center, that were knock-like. So we saw things because of the high-speed analytics we're performing on the IT data for security purposes, we saw things like top talkers within seconds or minutes as opposed to hours or, uh, you know, something like an hour in terms of the uh, old school SIM that they were using. So they started inquiring within us to, hey, can we get in on this data pipeline thing? Because yeah. you're getting metrics very quickly that relate to IT issues, like an, essentially an internal uh, screw-up where someone removes the server but doesn't remove the agent, so the agents are, you know, lonely for a uh, server, uh, and, and so they say, hey, where are you, server? Where are you, server? Over and over and over again, and it ends up being thousands of agents flooding the pipeline with CRUD and essentially creating an internal DDoS on the pipeline and the network with DNS 
So we say, hey, you know what? We're seeing a hockey stick in the last five minutes. These are the top 20 talkers. Identify who it is, who owns that source, and decommission those agents. And so we were yeah. actually acting, because of our ability to seize all this stuff very quickly, as a knock inside the sock in some cases. So there's a lot of cool use cases. Oh, yes. Well, believe it or not, we're getting almost to the end of our hour, and I only got through wow. a few of my questions. I have about 20 others here for you. But, you know, maybe in yeah. just uh, the last minute that we have here, what do you want people listening to take away from our conversation today? Sure. So we didn't talk about this too much, but I think people need to understand that if you are an IT leader, a CIO or a CTO, if you're a legal or privacy leader, and certainly if you're a security and privacy leader, you need to really understand these concepts, not the how to program the tools necessarily, but really understand the concepts of data pipeline data lake, because they will allow you to do more with the data you're already generating, own and be independent of the data analytics tools, because you can program your pipeline to give the analytics tools exactly what they need and not what they don't need. And be more independent by creating very fast proofs of concept and changes in your pipeline so that you can add or subtract analytical tools without suffering IT performance hits or IT project pain. And that's called forward compatibility, and we'll describe it in one second here. Forward compatibility well, is, let's say, DNS. Hmm? We're, we're getting close to the end. I don't want to cut you off, but I, yep. we're going to be cut off here pretty soon. So, um Thank you, Gull. I don't want to interrupt you. In fact, I, I'm going to need to yep. have you come back so we can talk about this some more. <laughs> cool. So thanks, Gull. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So, sure. So today I've been speaking with Gull Schwanzer, cybersecurity expert and the architect of the largest supported Minify deployment in the world, which we didn't even get into a lot of the details. But please send feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? Just let me know. Do you have another topic to suggest I cover? You can contact me using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. And if you can't make our scheduled debut show on the first Saturday of each month, you will be able to listen to the recordings. And you can find the recordings on all your favorite news apps. Uh, and until our next show, ask those that you do business with and work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the, in the month ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe.